We had a great trip to Israel and just got back a little over a week ago, and I'm reminded about one very obvious fact. If Israel has anything, it has rocks, and lots of them. Uh, Israel is a very fertile land in some areas, like this region that is around the Galilee. Someone was telling me the other day that uh, a normal wheat harvest in in the States might be, what, a couple cuttings, but in Israel it might be 15 or 17 cuttings because this is an amazing area to grow things. But there's a problem. This field has never been developed because of rocks. For centuries, people have lived in this lush valley, and it still looks the same today as it did hundreds of years ago. Rocks are everywhere. Some is soft limestone, some is hard, some is volcanic rock, aggregate rock, rocks of all kinds, and rocks are everywhere. And they affect daily life. You can't ignore them. It affects the way you travel from one place to another. You go in the valleys to avoid the mountains, the rocks. And you would avoid a place like this, hopefully finding a path that is smoother that you can travel on. Now, this is what Jesus used when he would use parables, when he would teach in parables. He would use rocks. A sower went out to sow his seed, and some fell upon the rocky soil. You say, what does that mean? Boom, there it is. I mean, it was all around him. And the people knew about rock theology, about petrology. They knew about the study of rocks. They were everywhere, and they couldn't get away from them. Or another time, Jesus said, a wise man built his house upon a rock. And people said, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's what we have to do here if we want a firm foundation. Also, in the land of Israel, you'll see fortresses that are built on rocks with rocks. I'm not exactly sure, but I think this is the fortress that we saw when we went all the way up to the northern part of Israel, to the Old Testament city of Dan, and then took a road that took us through the Golan Heights. And this is an old crusader fort or one very much like this, that is just on the border of Syria. So near Israel and just into the area of Syria. It's in the road that goes from the north part of Israel to Damascus. But it was typical of a fortress built on rocks with rocks. And so when Jesus would talk about a fortress, they knew exactly what he was talking about. These were all around them. And when you mention a fortress of rock or stone in Israel, you always think of this place, Masada. The name actually means fortress. Masada is a huge rock near the Dead Sea. And it was uh, inhabited, we know for sure, by the Hasmoneans as a stronghold. What's a stronghold? A fortress. What's a fortress? An exceptional place of security built on rocks with rocks. So the Hasmoneans were there, and then Herod the Great took it over for his palace. And you can see from this picture in the front uh, the three different levels of a palace that Herod built, although maybe he never lived there. And it's amazing rock. I scaled uh, Mount Masada. Well... Um, <laughs> took a tram <laughs> but if you look at the bottom of the picture there is a snake path and people do walk up that 
Some of our group always wants to do it, you know, the foolish ones, and they do it and meet the rest of us as we're sipping lemonade at the top or whatever. It's an amazing thing what you can see from the vantage point from the summit of a rock like this. Things look different. You can see far. Uh, on a clear day, you can see easily into Jordan, across the Dead Sea, into the northern part of Israel, and, and even up to the hills of Jericho and then beyond to Jerusalem. You can't quite see Jerusalem, but the vantage point is amazing. And from a place like this, it's easy to understand why throughout the Old Testament and the New, our God is compared to a rock. Open your Bibles to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. There are at least 30 times where the Bible talks about God being our rock. Or some benefit from the rock that can be attributed to God. Our study is going through the Bible looking at the images of God. These metaphors that God uses to communicate to us. Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. And pictures remain in our mind. And when words cannot communicate, a metaphor pierces through the confusion and locks into our heart and mind. And we say, oh, that's what God is. Our God is a rock. We read in Psalm 62 and beginning at the very first part because this is, as we've mentioned, part of Scripture. For the director of music, for Jeduthun, who we're told in 1 Chronicles 25 was chosen by David to be the chief musician. Jeduthun was one of the guys in charge of public worship. He would arrange the songs, maybe choose the tunes, and here David gave him one to use in worship. He would gather the Levitical singers together. He would arrange the music and the orchestra as it's mentioned throughout the book of Psalms so that something would be added to their worship, not just the songs and heart of devotion, but beautiful melodies that would help stick God's truth in their heart. That was the job that Jeduthun held. And then we read, this is a psalm of David, but there's no historic indication as to when he wrote it throughout his life. Many Bible scholars believe that David wrote this when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. When you read the psalm, you'll notice that David is in, under intense pressure and that human beings are attacking him and even trying to dethrone him from his lofty position. And all the wealth he has isn't enough to give him security. All the armies he has... None of them can aid his cause. He's got to find something greater than man and more powerful than wealth. Imagine if it is Absalom. Your own flesh and blood not only wants to take your job but kill you in the process. And David is on the run. Or if it wasn't Absalom, it was probably Saul, who when he found out that David had slayed his ten thousands and Saul only had a thousand to his credit, and that people were singing about David and they were ready to see Saul taken off the kingship. Well, it seems like David's heart would have been broken too when Saul tried to spear him to the wall. Whatever the case, 
David wrote this psalm and he found some kind of security. And I think we will as well as we look at the psalm. Now, just briefly, notice that there is a chorus repeated twice. The chorus in verse 1 and 2 is repeated in verse 5 and 6 with a little bit of difference, and we'll take note of what the difference is because I think it is significant. And then after the chorus, the psalmist looks at man. First of all, the man that, or the people who are trying to eliminate him, verse 3 and 4. And then he goes back to the chorus, verse 5 and 6. And then he looks at God, verse 7 and 8, the one who is the mighty rock. And then he looks at man again, verse 9 and 10. And how man weighed in the balance is nothing compared to the mighty God. And then he ends in verse 11 and 12 with a refocus on God. By the way, that's a good way to pray. There's a theme, and the theme is found in the chorus. And he talks about his problems and then goes back to God. And he evaluates life and then goes back to God. He goes back to the rock to get perspective. Look at the chorus, verse 1. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress and I will never be shaken. From this chorus, there are some important affirmations that arise out of the scripture text. Wonderful things that can impact and transform our lives. And the first one is simply this. God is my rock. That's the first one. And we have to understand what that metaphor means. God is my rock. I hope you can say that. Now, what does the metaphor mean? What is the meaning of this word picture that God has given to us? Well, I think there are 10,000 uses of the rock, and there must be 10,000 analogies applied to God. There are things that we can see, attributes of a rock. For instance, the fortress gives security, and the rock as a foundation gives stability and we're going to notice that the rock has integrity and even provides vitality and life. That all comes to us out of the Old Testament when we say, God is my rock. It's amazing when you get up to the summit of Masada, what you can see. And it is amazing when you stand upon the rock God Almighty, when you stand upon his revealed word and you look at the world all around you, you have a totally different perspective. The first time God is called a rock is Genesis 49, verse 23. It's when Jacob is blessing his sons and he's blessing Joseph and he talks about the mighty God of Jacob. He talks about him being a shepherd and he calls him the rock of Israel. Moses picks up on that. And when they are coming up out of Egypt, Moses encourages the people of God to view the Lord like this. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does not wrong. Upright and just is he. Notice the integrity connected with the metaphor. 
The psalmist later tells us, the Lord is upright, he's my rock, and there's no wickedness in him. There's a sense of integrity and righteousness about this this rock. It was here before we got here, it's here now, and it'll be here long after we leave. It remains true, there's no duplicity. It is what it is, and it always will be there. So our God is a rock, Moses said, never forget that. But there's something else, not just the meaning of the metaphor, but the whole idea that this is a personal possession, right? Notice what the scripture says. God is my rock. When we look at Psalm 23, we are astounded to think that some people could read this in five comfort if they don't know the Lord personally. Because the very first verse says, the Lord is what? My shepherd. If you say the Lord is a shepherd, there's no sense of value. There's no sense of benefit or comfort. And it's the same with the rock. Except you see the word my several times. It's four times in the chorus, one and two. Four times again in the chorus, five and six. It's mentioned in verse seven. He is my mighty rock. There's a sense of personal connection and personal attachment and personal possession. Not that we own God, but that we are savingly connected to him. What a glorious thought. God is my rock. And you won't understand the blessings until you can say with a heart of faith, I've cast myself upon the only one who can hold me up. And that is Jehovah my rock. Here's a second affirmation. God alone is my rock. Did you notice that? God alone is my rock. David could not only say in the Psalms that God is my rock, but he attached himself to that rock exclusively. You see, there is the danger of idolatry when we talk about rocks because rocks are connected to worship. When you go to Israel, you learn that uh, whenever there was, uh, uh, wherever there was a place of worship, it was usually built upon a rock. And then you would even go to the high place, which is the highest rock, or on the highest place, rocks were built up to form an altar. We went to the Old Testament city of Dan, again in the northern part of Israel, and recounted the story of Jeroboam. You see, the tribe of Dan did not like the allotment they were given when all the tribes were given land because they were in the southern region, more of a desert climate, and they wanted to be in the north And so they were given the lush area around Caesarea Philippi that became Old Testament Dan. Waterfalls, greenery, beautiful place, mountains next to Mount Hermon. But they said, you know, now that we're here and we love this place, it's too far to go down to Jerusalem to worship. So let's build our own altar. And the sin of Jeroboam was the sin of introducing idolatry to the people of God. And the rest of the kings of Israel who followed in his path followed in the sin of their father Jeroboam by multiplying gods. Well, when you go into that archaeological area today, Old Testament Dan, you come into the city gate and there are three rocks by the city gate and you say to your guide, what are those? And the guide will say, those 
are their gods, each rock representing another god. And you work your way up and up to the high place where they sacrificed to Jehovah, but in a way that he had not prescribed. And they introduced false gods. You and I are in danger of having other rocks except God. I've got a grandson who just loves to collect rocks. He, uh, you know, we have rocks in our lawn. They're, they're sp- around our trees. They're supposed to be decorative, and he loves to pick those up and just spread them everywhere in the grass. And I really don't care because I don't have to mow. Someone else does. But uh, that's got to be a problem for the mower. And he'll collect them. He, he has to bring them home, you know, put them in the wagon and bring them home. And I remember that's what my youngest daughter, Kendra, used to do. She had this rock fetish. She had to get rocks everywhere, and she'd bring the ugliest rocks home. And then you'd trip your toe on them as they were standing out on the landing. And I thought, that's ridiculous. I came back from Israel, and you know what I brought back? Rocks. <laughs> I found this beautiful rock from Engedi, and I found this other rock from Caesarea, and, and I thought, I'm a rock collector too. And most of us are. The rocks we collect are other gods. You see, we're not exclusively the Lord's, and that's what he desires, exclusivity. God wants to be God alone. He said, have no other gods before me. There is one rock and one rock alone. And when David wrote in Psalm 18 that the Lord is my rock, my refuge, my deliverer, my God is my rock, he said in verse 31 of Psalm 18, for who is God besides the Lord and who is the rock except our God? There is no rock to compare with this rock. How many rocks do you have that you look to for security, that you build your life upon? Wealth? Friends? Have you ever heard someone say, I don't know what I'm going to do because so-and-so have passed away? They were my rock. Now, that's okay because we need to depend on one another. That's okay in a secondary sense, but if that's the only rock you you have, other people, you're in big trouble. Or if you say, my rock is my 401k, you're in big trouble. Could be. You see, we have a bunch of other rocks that we worship, that we love, that we trust in. They're going to give us all of these things. And God says, no, I am your rock alone. Have no other rocks before me. And when we make God our point of security, when we make God the foundation of our life, all that God is, he is to us. He is my rock, and he alone is the one I trust in. That's what the psalmist is saying when he mentions this beautiful chorus. But he doesn't stop there. There's one third affirmation, and it is this. God is my rock. Since he is my rock, I shall not be moved. Isn't that amazing? Now, he says it in verse 1 in a little different way than he says it in verse 5. And you might miss it. Um, The English translation doesn't translate one Hebrew word, at least in the NIV, in verse 2. It says, He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never greatly be shaken. 
the Hebrew modifier is in there. I will never be shaken greatly. Now that's qualified, isn't it? The word shaken, by the way, is seen some 36 times in the Old Testament, 24 times in the book of Psalms. Sometimes it's translated to be moved. Sometimes it means tremble or slip or fall or simply to be demoralized. Sometimes an event will take place and we'll say, that really shook me. That means emotionally it brought us to a point of breaking or of fear, disillusionment. So the psalmist says in verse 2, I will never be shaken greatly. But when he gets to verse 6, there's no qualifier. It simply reads, I will not be shaken. I want you to notice that progressive confidence that's growing in his heart. Because in this psalm the David, that David wrote, he's working through a personal issue. He's got the fear and the danger all around him, but he wants to work to the place where he can say, my soul rests in God. It's a statement in verse 1. It's a command in verse 5. My soul, find your rest in God. In verse 2, he qualified. I won't be greatly shaken in verse 6. He says... I will not be shaken. There's growth. Notice verse 3 and 4. How long will you assault a man? Referring to himself. I'm only a man. Would all of you throw him down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? I am like a fence about ready to crumble, David says. My enemies fully intend to topple me from my lofty place as king. And they do it because they delight in lies. With her mouth, they bless me. That's what Absalom did. But in his heart, they curse me. So I can't trust in other people and I can't trust in myself because I'm so weak. I've got to find my trust somewhere else. I'll always be shaken. Look at verse 9. Low-born men are but a breath. High-born are but a lie. It doesn't make any difference what class you come from. You can't trust in people. They'll all let you down. Because if weighed in the balance, all men are nothing. Top class, low class. Together, they're only a puff of breath. Now, if you're going to weigh in the scale a puff of breath against, verse 7, a mighty rock, who wins? And by the way, verse 10, don't trust in riches gained in some kind of criminal way. Extortion, stealing. And even if your riches increase, don't set your heart on them. This is where Paul got his inspiration for writing 1 Timothy chapter 6. When riches increase, don't trust them. So all of these things will let you down, but you can trust in Jehovah and trust in him alone. So here are the affirmations. My God... God is my rock. God alone is my rock. And since God is my rock, I shall not be moved. So what do we do? This is the truth. This is the teaching. Verse 8 is the application. Therefore, trust in him at all times. Don't trust in the people, verse 9 and 10. Don't trust in your own strength, verse 3 and 4. Trust in him at all times. 
And secondly, verse 8, O people, pour out your heart to him. God is our refuge. That is, cry out to him in prayer. At least on two occasions, when God is called a rock in the book of Psalms, it's the psalmist saying, I will cry out to my rock. I will look to him for help. By the way, the psalmist puts it this way. From the ends of the earth, I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. By the way, if you're going to build a house upon a rock, you want your rock to be above the floodplain. That only makes sense. And our rocks are far below water level. The rocks that you and I trust in cannot withstand the storms of time. But Jehovah can. So trust him always. By the way, the rock has been here before you came. It's here now and it'll always be here after you leave. There's some dignity about a rock, some gravitas. There's emotionless grandeur about something so amazing. And that's true of Jehovah. Pour out your heart to him. Now, I know if you talk to rocks in the real world, world people will think you're crazy. This is a rock that will respond. And then I love the way it ends. Again, after looking at how weak man is, man is nothing. Look at verse 10 and 11. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Now, please understand that the psalmist wasn't writing this out and said, oh, I wrote one thing and I forgot there's something else. You and I do that. We have to throw the letter away and start over. But this is a literary technique for emphasis. Uh, remember the book of Proverbs? There are six things the Lord hates and seven are an abomination to him. It's not because Solomon forgot about the last one. It's just a way to emphasize, to underline, to capitalize, to put in bold print. There are two things I want you to remember, and I love these. Number one, our God is powerful compared to the breath of man. And our God is loving, verse 12, compared to the attacks of man in verse 3 and 4. So the two ways that men were uh, visualized in this psalm as my attackers who want to kill me, verse 3 and 4, and as weak people who cannot be trusted in, who are a mere puff of breath, in two verses the psalmist says, God is powerful and God is merciful. Mercy and might meet together in Jehovah who is called a rock. Isn't that a wonderful picture? I mean, how can you live without a rock? How can you stand true and tall without Jehovah? You won't. You'll be swept away. The Hebrew word for love here is hesed. It's true dependability and steadfast love. The love of God never, ever changes. Back in May of 2003... The old man in the mountain broke. Do you know what I'm referring to? It's that 40-foot profile of an old man's face that was carved in the white mountains of New Hampshire. It was quite an amazing sight. Carved there by God with 
the use of nature, the storms, the winds, whatever it was. It broke. Fell into the sea. Can't see the old man anymore. And it was a sad thing because this was a major tourist attraction. In fact, it was the state emblem of New Hampshire as well. And uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote about it in one of his short stories. I mean, this was iconic, was it not? And when it fell into the ocean, one woman who lived nearby said, I grew up thinking someone was watching over me, and now I feel a little less secure. And I say, oh, dear woman, (laughs) if you've merely got a rock, one of many looking over you, you're in trouble. But if you had the rock, he'll never break off and he'll never change. And he's always the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Some of us like to go out to uh, Plymouth Rock. You know, that's that wonderful symbolism of the founding of our country. Plymouth Rock, 1620, the Mayflower lands, the pilgrims get off. A new nation is founded, and you want to go see Plymouth Rock, and you get there, and you say, boy, that's a puny little thing. Did you know it's only one-third the size it was from when they landed there in the 1600s? Because people over the years have chiseled off a little souvenir and the waves have worn it away and it's nothing like the rock it once was but our God is a rock who never is defaced our God is a rock who never wears away with the passage of time Our God is a rock who can be trusted. And when you trust him at all times and pour out your heart to him, you are secure, you are stable. There's integrity in that rock and vitality as God gives you water from the rock and honey as well. So, the what if or the what now of this sermon is simply cast yourself upon the rock. Make sure that God is your rock. Make sure that God is your rock alone. And make sure you're trusting him so that you shall not be moved. That's the promise of God, the rock. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that we can trust. Lord, we confess that the storms have beaten us and at times have moved us. We feel that the waves have gone over our head and sometimes that there is no hope. Oh, save to the rock that is higher than I. My soul in its conflicts and sorrows would fly. So sinful, so weary. Thine, thine would I be. Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. May that be a reality in our life. We pray in your name. Amen.